right. So, hi, Kathleen. Thank you so much for joining me today. Would you like to give a quick introduction about yourself? Sure. I'm Kathleen Sharp. I'm an award-winning journalist and author and a film documentary co-producer. Great. And so I wanted to talk to you today about your recently published story about the Metropolitan uh, Museum of Art displaying stolen Native art. I just wanted to ask, what inspired you to look into that? Well, I've been working on indigenous topics for quite a long time. And about six years ago for the Smithsonian, I wrote a story about this FBI sting in the four corners of the United States of an enormous amount of Native American artifacts and art that had been stolen by uh, a lot of traders and diggers. And uh, the FBI apprehended all of these people before they could smuggle them out of the country. So once that started, I got to know the Hopi. I got to know many of the people in the Navajo expert tribal office, uh, the Lakota, and one story led to another. And there just seemed like a whole big field that nobody else was really following. Mm -hmm. And so at what point did you realize that this was an ongoing issue that wasn't being discussed? Well, I got a an award or a uh, fellowship to go to Paris. And there I saw auctions of Native American objects that had been plundered, most likely. And I was shocked when I saw one alleged war shirt being sold for a million dollars. And the tribe had objected, but it didn't matter at all to the auctioneer, to the buyers or the sellers. And that's when I said, aha, you know, this is an incredible black market. Um, and is worth a lot of money, and it's worth looking at, too. Mm -hmm. And it seems like most of the museums don't put in the work to fully research and understand the background of these artifacts. Who is responsible and who has the agency to say that these are Native artifacts that need to be returned? Well, I think the key word here is provenance. Whenever we buy a car, we're supposed to trace back uh, ownership of that car. Whenever we buy a house, we have to trace back the ownership of that house and prove with papers that we own it. That's not true with art. And uh, museums have a responsibility to trace the provenance or the history of these pieces. And I have to say that, you know, there are museums that do do that. For example, many of them are out here in the West, whether it's the Autry Museum, uh, the Northern Arizona Museum, the Denver Museum. But I think I was shocked to find that the Metropolitan Art Museum, which is the world's fourth largest, most esteemed museum, is not great at provenance. Mm -hmm. Not just Native American art. When I was at, in New York at the Met, as they call it, uh, the district attorney had just seized stolen, allegedly stolen art from Egypt, Italy, Greece, Rome, and a lot of these pieces had been donated or given to the Met by extremely wealthy uh, art collectors. Mm -hmm. And so, again, the provenance on these were not at all, you know, they weren't very good or they even didn't exist. And yet the museum took it because there's a lust to have, you know, the whole experience of human nature or human um, civilization out there. Mm -hmm. And so the museums will take something even though the provenance may not be 100%. Mm. 
that flows right into my next question, which is you mentioned that lots of wealthy people are the ones that acquire these artifacts. How do they even get them in the first place? Well, they use traders, they use dealers, they use black market smugglers. Uh, they'll go to Paris or Belgium or London and uh, bid on items in, um, at auction. So there's many, many ways. Uh, some are an- underhanded or black market, and some they think are legitimate. But unless you have that piece of paper or a really you know, historically documented trail of ownership, you may be in trouble. Mm-hmm. And so do museums not have that standard of looking as far as they can to find that provenance? Well, that's a great question. The museums do have that standard, and in fact... Most of them are members of the American Alliance of Art Museums, and that's one of the first things that um, they're required to do Mm -hmm. is trace provenance. But it's expensive, I mean, relatively expensive. It probably costs $100,000 for the Met to hire somebody to trace the provenance or to um, verify the provenance of some of these items. But it's not a priority, evidently. Mm -hmm. But they surely have the money to hire people to do that research and to have that as their priority, right? Well, they do, and some don't. But, you know, there's museums at universities. There's museums Mm -hmm. on the side of the road that are private. But any public museum, like the Met, uh, that uses public money has to, you know, follow public law, federal law. And the law with Native American things is that you have to alert the tribes as soon as you get an item and work with them to find out if it's sacred, if it was taken from a a grave, if it is somehow um, not appropriate to display. And you also need to give the tribes an opportunity to ask for it back Mm -hmm. because there's just been 500 years of theft and plunder. And, uh, you know, NAGPRA, which is federal law, passed about 30 years ago, and it's supposed to give an opportunity for tribes to get their objects back. Mm-hmm. And from the people that you've talked to that are part of these Native tribes, how do they feel about this? Oh, they felt very offended. Some uh, are not uh, happy at all, but they wouldn't speak up or say something. Mm-hmm. Uh, some tribes don't want anything to do with something that a museum or an outsider has touched, so they won't claim it. So you really have to talk to each individual tribe to find out how they treat these things or what they think about it. But in my experience of three years of interviewing people, uh, the Native Americans were really outraged that they weren't contacted by the Met. And um, I think that's starting to change now. And I just wanted to go back to a point you made about sacred items. Mm -hmm. I know in your article you wrote about how the Met acknowledged that some items were sacred and decided to take them down. What is that museum culture like where they want to display everything that they can and find? Right. They only took things down after I started asking questions Mm -hmm. last summer. So um, there is that to uh, ponder. But I think to them it was all art. And they got this incredible trove uh, from very wealthy, you know, art collectors who didn't also talk to Native American people. And these people love the aesthetics. You know, they love the beauty and the colors of uh, these Native American items, but they had no idea what they meant. Mm -hmm. So, for example, there was a teepee uh, that I looked at, and it was made by the Lakota back in the 1880s. 
and the museum called it a model teepee cover. But what it was was a very miniature small teepee that was meant to teach children how to erect their own teepees because their culture was being wiped out at that mm-hmm. time. You know, there was the Sioux Wars, and the uh, U.S. Army was killing all kinds of uh, Native American tribes to get their land. So it was really a poignant kind of piece of history that the museum didn't really understand. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a good point that these artifacts are there to educate future generations within these tribes. Can you touch on how taking these looted items and having them displayed in museums rather than with the tribe they belong to affects the future generations of them? Oh, yes. I talked to many uh, Native American experts and Guggenheim award winners who told me that it's a deep, deep wound in the younger generation. And it has been for, you know, decades, centuries. And once they see something that their ancestors made in the 1870s that has gone missing for 150 years, you see a light go on in their eye. And they learn how to make these objects again. They learn the history of it. And it's deeply healing. It draws some of the younger generation away from drugs, away from alcohol, and back into art and back into history, which is a beautiful thing. And so I just wanted to touch back on that perspective that wealthy people have towards very sacred items as just decorative Mm -hmm. and art. Where did that come from? Well, that came from uh, years of being able to buy beautiful things Mm -hmm. and not being conscious of where they came from or what they stand for. There's kind of a competition in this very small sector, uh, but growing sector of Native Mm -hmm. American art. If you can find a headdress, for example, that belonged to Sitting Bull, I mean, that, that's worth a lot of money. And it also has bragging rights, so you can hang it up on your chalet in Geneva. Mm-hmm. So there's that kind of monetary and pride value to obtaining these things. Status. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them do donate them to museums for tax write-offs uh, or for prestige or they'll loan them to the museums and then take them back and put them on the auction block, which, you know, then the value just rockets Mm -hmm. because it's been in a prestigious museum. So it was really eye-opening to find out about that whole corner of the market. Yeah, that's a completely different culture (laughs) than the art, the art world, I guess. Well, I found that the art world is uh, not transparent at all. In auctions, you don't know who's buying, who's selling. Mm. Uh, Sometimes you don't even know for how much. It's a huge market, and the U.S. consumer, mostly the wealthy people, are the biggest buyers and consumers of art, which I found fascinating. Mm -hmm. When these art are found displayed in these museums, how do Native tribes discover that they're out there and that they've been missing? Do they acknowledge that they were ever gone? Well, some tribes have relationships with some museums. For example, the Brooklyn Museum is keeping safe for the Hopi, the deities or the friends that Mm -hmm. they have, and they will let the Hopi come and feed and pray to the deities until the Hopi can afford to build their own museum. So not all museums are, you know, don't contact the tribes. But for those that do not, the only way a tribal person would know that a museum has its objects is if they were to visit it, which is prohibitively expensive Mm -hmm. for many of these tribes. Some live in Alaska, Mm 3,500 miles away, 
or they see it in a catalog, which is also rather expensive. These books cost $50, $60. So, um, and meanwhile, tribes are trying to build schools, build roads, uh, handle COVID, get voting uh, rights back. Um, they're overwhelmed with all of the things that a, a country would have to do. And do you have a message for the public to know and inform themselves more about this issue and to recognize the tribes that have had their art stolen? Well, I think it's real important for us to realize when we're out hiking uh, and we see something, whether it's a, a cistern or a grave, that we don't disturb it and leave things there and that we give uh, much more respect to the works of Native Americans. I mean, when you think about it, there used to be a hundred million Native American people in North and South America. And with a very, very short amount of time, they were wiped out. And today, in this country, in the United States, there's only about 200,000 left. So um, it's been called the greatest genocide of all time. But the beauty of it is that these people are coming back. They're rediscovering their language, rediscovering their art. Um, and inviting more and more outsiders to come in and uh, appreciate it too. So, um, you know, these are the original Americans. They know how to take care of the earth, the trees, the forests, the water. And they're teaching us things now that, especially about wildfire, that we didn't know before. Mm -hmm. So let's salute them. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, thank you so much for sharing this story to the public and making it well aware to everyone that this is an issue that's going on. It's my pleasure, and thanks for the invite. Yes, <laughs> of course.